0: Today we're in the book of Colossians. We've gotten to chapter 2. We'll be here in the fall, uh, up uh, into November. And uh, Colossians is an amazing book because it's all about Jesus. Um, so uh, I, I just am loving this book as we go through it. As we prepare uh, part of our staff meeting every week, the pastor's. Uh, we start to go through all our business and then we open whatever the text is for the week. And it's, uh, it's usually me saying, okay, what do I do with this? And uh, they give me all sorts of wisdom. So that's great. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to read the first five verses. And encourage you to listen carefully as this is God's word. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have uh, again brought us to this wonderful book that speaks again and again of the supremacy of Christ. We pray this morning you would use it for our spiritual nourishment, we, uh, each of us, comes in our own condition today. Some have come this morning discouraged, needing encouragement. Some have come disillusioned and apathetic and needing strengthening. Uh, We pray that you would work by your word and by your spirit in our hearts. We know that this word is the sword of the spirit, pierces even to the joint and marrow. It finds places in our hearts which even our closest friends can't penetrate. So open us up before your word. And make your word an instrument of the grace of salvation. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Quiz time. You ready? Name the author of this famous quote. Religion is the opium of the people. Really good room full of smart people. So those of you that answered Karl Marx, you're right. You're also not the average student in Mark Goldblatt's college writing class. Uh, Mark Goldblatt is a writer and a professor and he gives a test uh, to his freshmen uh, each semester. And a recent class was stumped, as usual, by the professor's question, this question. so he decided to give them a clue and he said, the author was German. And one girl raised her hand, said, was it Martin Luther? And everybody started laughing, but not for the reason that you might think and probably not for the reason you started laughing. They started laughing because they thought the woman meant to say Martin Luther King. And so uh, Professor Goldblatt had to explain to them that Martin Luther King was actually named after Martin Luther, who is a leader of the Protestant Reformation and who was, in fact, German. Still, however, a long way from Karl Marx. And Professor Goldblatt laments the fact that many students today are affected by two primary problems. One, they don't know what they should know. They don't know what they should know. And two, they assume they know more than they actually do know. So they don't know what they should know, but they think they know more than they do. So what does that mean for you and me? It means that we need to grow in our knowledge of God and in our knowledge of our culture, our world. The late John R.W. Stott said, we live between two worlds, the world of the Bible and the world of today. And we have to figure out how to bridge that gap. And so if we're going to have a meaningful discussion of a subject, any subject, historical, scientific, philosophical, or biblical, with someone, with anyone, we have to possess some knowledge of the people and the ideas that are associated with that subject why because it's easy for us to be swayed by a philosophy or a theory if we don't understand it if we don't know where it came from if we don't know its origin it's hard to go deep into a discussion with a person who doesn't believe in Jesus if we have no idea uh, what they do believe in or even what they're talking about so what do we do where do we begin Well, I would argue that we begin, actually, with Jesus. He is the one, according to our text today, Colossians 2, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so by careful study of his word, we now have the filter for our education, so to speak, for our knowledge. And with that uh, growing, uh, developing screen in place, We are to strive to learn as much as possible. Well, at the same time, we get warned later on in Colossians, we'll see in a couple of weeks, it tells us, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So the question is, do you know what you should know? Which, of course, begs the follow-on question. What should you know? And there's probably lots and lots of answers to that question. But if we ask that question, what should you know of the Apostle Paul, how do you think he would answer? Perhaps he would quote from his famous letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Gentiles, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then in that same chapter, if we jump down to verse 30, it says, "And because of him, God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And then if you just kept going and rolling right into chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, it says, and Paul's writing, but in the power of God. And so it's pretty clear that according to the Apostle Paul, what you should know first, among many things, but what you should know first is Jesus Christ and him crucified. In fact, according to today's passage, that's what Paul wants. And that's the first blank in your outline, what Paul wants. It says, starting at verse 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Apostle Paul sums up the content of all of his preaching by naming a person, Jesus Christ. And Christ's saving presence among the Gentiles is the secret formerly hidden, now revealed, as we saw last week at the end of Colossians 1. And now he's telling that that in, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As we just saw, he told the Corinthians that in coming to them, he had resolved to preach nothing but Jesus Christ in him crucified. And yet this monotone, repetitive message was fully adequate to meet all their needs. God's apparently foolish, weak, cross-centered message is wiser than human wisdom and stronger than human strength. He starts off by saying, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And I ask the question, why does Paul struggle for these people who he hasn't even met? What do they need so desperately? What's the urgent answer Paul felt compelled to risk his life to make known to them and to us? In mentioning a struggle, Paul uses, again, for the third time in this book, the noun agon, from which we get our English word, agony. The words originally derived from the place where the Greeks assembled for the Olympic Games, and a place where they agonized in wrestling and foot races. If you've just finished watching the Olympics a few weeks ago, you know how some of those people agonized in their events. And Paul says he's been agonizing, fighting for the Colossians with everything he has. But what makes this truly remarkable is he's never once visited them or their neighboring churches. And aside from Epaphras and Philemon and maybe a few others he'd met in Ephesus, he's never even seen the Colossians. He had no idea what these people looked like. He knew nothing of their personalities, and yet he agonized for them. Why? Why does a Marine go into battle for strangers back home? Why does the air traffic controller work so hard to land those planes in the right order? Why does the nurse show such compassion for someone she's never met? Why? Why is Paul struggling, sweating, risking his life to deliver his message to people he's never even seen, people whose stories he doesn't know? Because that's his job, given to him by God, and because they need it. It says in Acts 9, the Lord said to him, Go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine." to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. But there's even more, for Paul and the Colossians share the same relationship with Christ. He's their spiritual father because he had won them through Epaphras. And all of these elements contributed to this agonizing struggle. Perhaps this persecution as well. After all, he was in prison when he was writing this letter. Wherever Paul went, there was conflict. I'm not sure I'd have gotten along with Paul. I don't like people who engender conflict, you know. And wherever Paul went, there's conflict. I mean, you read Acts, there's riots in Ephesus, beatings in Philippi, stoning in Lystra. Come with me, missions is great. Shipwreck at sea, dangers everywhere. He bears his heart in 2 Corinthians. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. The words he used here describe a beast of burden which has fallen and can't get up because the load's so heavy. That's how Paul felt in Asia, and this is in Asia as in China. This is Asia as in Turkey, and it was so bad he thought he's going to die. He says he despaired of life itself. So there's also this struggle, this agony of his labor in the gospel. He wrote to the church and. Thessalonica and 1 Thessalonians 2. Remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that so we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. In addition, there's the struggle, the, the agony that came from caring so much of how his people were doing, how the new converts were doing, how the new church plants were doing. He said in Second Corinthians 11, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? It hurts to care. And there's nights when I imagine Paul tossed and turned as he thought about all these people in all these churches and empathized with their ups and downs. Most of all, he wrestled in prayer with them. And that's where the real fight is. At the end of our book in Colossians 4, he's going to write about Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you always struggling he's using the same word here always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you might stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God this is where the greatness of his struggle for the Colossians believers lay Paul agonized in prayer for people he had never seen and he tells them why he's struggling He tells them exactly what it is that he wants for them. Verse two, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So the first two items on our needs list here are encouraged hearts and this love-saturated unity with other believers. For hearts are discouraged if We're many things instead of one together in Christ. He says we're missing out. We're missing what it means to uh, belong to God, to be in Christ, to be fully Christian. Paul knows we should be loaded, rich, wealthy, fully funded in our understanding of Jesus. And if we don't really know Jesus, we're broke. We're missing the point. We think he's just a piece of the puzzle instead of the picture on the box. in fact, he is the final answer. He's the starting point. All the facts and what to do with them are waiting to be found in Jesus. Tim Keller of Redeemer Church in New York City once said that all the way back in 1970, he was sitting in Sunday school one day. Kudos for all of our Sunday school teachers. And he said, a Sunday school teacher changed his life with a simple illustration. The teacher said, let's assume the distance between the earth and the sun, 92 million miles, was reduced to the thickness of this sheet of paper. So this sheet of paper, the thickness, represents the distance between the earth and the sun. He says, if that's the case, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. And the diameter of the galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And then the teacher said, the galaxy is just a speck of dust in the universe. And let the scriptures say that Jesus holds the universe together by the word of his power. And then the teacher asked her students, now, is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? Tim Keller said it changed his life. What you think of Christ, your understanding of him is everything. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that he is eternal without beginning and without end, and that he always was continuing, if you believe he's the creator of everything, every cosmic speck across trillions of light years of trackless space, the creator of textures and shapes and colors which daily dazzle your eyes, if you believe that he is the sustainer of all creation, the force which is presently holding the atoms of your body, your town, and the universe together, and that without him it would all fall apart and dissolve, if you believe that he is the mystery, the incarnate reconciler who will one day reconcile the universe and redeem humanity to himself, if you believe that he is the lover of your soul who loves you with a love unbounded by his eternal and infinite character, then despite the fact that life is full of trouble, nothing much will go wrong. Your vision of Christ will shape your life. In fact, will give it life. What you believe about Christ makes all the difference in the world now and in eternity. And yet Paul prays that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In other words, our depth of understanding is enhanced when believers' hearts are bound together in love. It means that mere intellectual comprehension of Christ is not going to bring you full understanding. For understanding also comes through the love of Christians one for the other. How is this so? When we're loved by other believers, we experience Christ through them. And thus our knowledge of Christ is increased. That's an important message for anyone that wants to be a mature Christian. No intellectual process in and of itself leads to a full grasp of the mystery of Christ unless it's accompanied by a love for Christ and a love for Christians that knits us as the church together in love. We can't pursue knowledge of God in a willful, unloving isolation, rejecting fellowship with others. Complete understanding of Christ comes in a community that loves each other. We have to study the scriptures about him intensely with all our heart. And we have to love him with all our soul. And we have to love his people with all our heart and mind and soul as well. And then we're told we'll know him as we should. That's critical because in Christ, verse 3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now that's a swing at the false teachers who were there uh Disrupting this church, this Colossian church, saying that they had the way to wisdom and knowledge. Paul well, says there's no other treasury of knowledge. all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. You know people ask me if we ever have a theme verse and I say, yeah, kind of it's second Peter 3:18. And I I don't usually tell them what 2 Peter 3.17 is. But I think they go together and they very much parallel our verse today. It says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul has the same concern that Peter did he's concerned that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability in fact we discover here in colossians 2 that that's what paul fears that's what paul fears verse 4 i say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments you know this week i read a fascinating account by matt chandler uh Uh, that took place at a large evangelical conference he was at a few years ago. Matt's the pastor of the Village Church. It's in the Dallas area. He's the president of the Acts 29 network, which is a church planning network. And so he wrote that he was at this conference. It was in 2009, so it was just a few years ago. He says, I was speaking at what's probably the largest conference in the United States. There were well over 10,000 people there. I stuck my head in on two speakers before I was to go on. And this particular speaker was giving a talk which basically revolved around this idea of, are you a guardian or are you a gardener? It became very apparent in his talk. He's saying we should be gardeners. We're to cultivate the gospel and make those things look beautiful. We're to cultivate and garden well. He said the guardian thing, that's so outdated. A cold, silly idea that you have to stand guard over anything. His point was we should be gardeners, help things grow. He said even the illustration is flawed because even the gardener has to weed out the weeds. But at the end, Matt said, I'm I'm listening. I'm thinking to myself, yeah, that's good. Gardener or guardian, which do you want to be? You know, gardener sounds better. Want to cultivate, help people grow. I don't want to be the guy who stands in front of the garden and says, you're not allowed in. You can't do this. Don't do that. And he starts talking about how the gospel is like the garden and it has to be nurtured and fed. And then at the end of the talk, he said, quote, now I wish I could define the gospel for you, but I can't define the gospel for you. The gospel can only be defined within individual communities. And the second he said that, Matt writes, I snapped out of it and thought, that's why we need guardians. That's why somebody has to guard the gate, because of ridiculous stuff like that where what has been easily defined for thousands of years is now being called into question and then the guy goes on and says okay that double imputation where christ takes on our sin and we get his righteousness that's not the gospel that has to be decided the gospel has to be decided by you and your community and he said, now relativity's been introduced into what historically has not been relative at all. It's always been, here's the truth, here's how God's revealed himself in Scripture, and all of a sudden it's you define it how you want to define it, and I'll define it how I want to define it. And I was reminded why we need guardians. It's precisely the problem that Paul is facing in dealing with this Colossian church. False teachers had come in, preaching a different gospel with plausible arguments they were preaching a jesus plus religion and paul was coming to them not as a gardener but as a guardian in light of the heresy that's creeping into the colossian church paul stresses the need for the colossians understanding to include a true knowledge of god's mystery that is christ himself he says which is is christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and at the heart of this understanding they need to have a settled conviction about who jesus is and what he did about the deity of christ and the sufficiency of christ in christ himself the hidden god reveals himself to mankind in that sense he is god's mystery jesus is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge he alone is sufficient. Because Christ is sufficient, there is no need for the writings of any cult or philosophy or psychology to supplement the Bible. He is the source of true spiritual knowledge. Doesn't mean those other things are necessarily wrong, it just means we don't need Christ plus them to be a Christian. That knowledge is also crucial to assurance of knowing that you're a Christian, because doubts about Christ's sufficiency bring doubts about his ability to do what he said. Paul says in verse four, "The reason for his concern for knowing Christ is in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. The basic attack of all of false systems throughout history is to either deny Christ's deity, say he's not really God, or to deny his humanity say he wasn't fully man believers who have a settled conviction about his deity and humanity are able to withstand the onslaughts of false teachers so having told us what he wants and what he fears paul goes on to comment on what he sees verse five what he sees he says for though i am absent in body yet i am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in christ Paul sees that they're standing firm and he rejoices with them and even though he's absent in body due to his imprisonment in Rome, he says he's with them in spirit, and their good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ causes him to rejoice and When Paul says good order, he's actually using a military term it refers to a line of soldiers drawn up for battle, it might be the condition of troops in the field being found in proper order for the battle that lay before him. the paraphrase. translation the message it says I'm delighted to hear of the careful and orderly ways you conduct your affairs confirming once and for all that Paul was a Presbyterian we might paraphrase it ourselves you are living the way you're supposed to be living as Christians they're giving attention to their spiritual lives and the spiritual disciplines which are necessary for spiritual maintenance We could summarize some of those things in the opening greeting we had back at the beginning of chapter 1. These believers had a faith anchored in Jesus Christ alone, a vibrant love for the fellow believers, a lively hope in Christ, fruitfulness in their grasp and application of the word, uh, consistency and growth, a teachable spirit, love orchestrated by the Holy Spirit. But he says you haven't arrived yet. You're not yet fully mature. There's room to increase in faith. And they're certainly concerned to maintain their spiritual maturity. So he rejoices over their good order. Second, he refers to the firmness of their faith in Christ. And again, he's using a military term which points now not just to an orderly front, but a solid front. When you think of the solidity of a formation of soldiers. And taken together, they express his joy that both individually and collectively, the Colossians are standing firm against the attacks of false teachers. Pictures of people who are anchored in the truth of Christ and in him crucified. And though they're surrounded by false teachers who are trying to delude them, their ranks are unbroken. And his goal for them is that they remain settled and fortified in their present understanding, not yielding to doubt. We're reminded that passivity doesn't build faithful churches the effort on the part of all of the membership and exercising spiritual disciplines to increase spiritual growth is not a luxury it's a necessity firmness of our faith in christ is an ongoing thing it's no accident i think that paul is using military terminology uh, here effective military units don't just happen they have to work hard at their discipline and at their teamwork and their attitude to be prepared for whatever they may face. And the church has to have that same posture. So with that being the case, I have to ask the question, are you firm in your commitment? If Paul came and looked at us, would he say, I rejoice in your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ? Are you firm in your commitment to the truth that believers are complete in Christ? Are you firmly convinced that Jesus has paid it all? Are you firmly convinced that forgiveness is found in him and we need to look no place else to find forgiveness? Are you firmly convinced that all the spiritual strength and power which you need for living the Christian life can be found in Christ And we don't need to go anywhere else in addition to Christ to find that power. Are you firmly convinced of those things? Now, I understand the world in which we live. Perhaps someone has come to you, perhaps a friend, suggesting that, you know, in addition to these scriptures, there are some other ancient texts that would help you in your walk with God. And while it may not be an intentional lie, they're coming with a lie from the pit of hell when they come with that, because the all-sufficient Christ said, this is my word, it is sufficient for you. The prophet Isaiah said, to the teaching and the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. Essentially, saying if they tell you to look someplace else other than to the teaching and the testimony, the truth is not in them. Are you convinced that these scriptures are sufficient for your edification, for your strengthening, for growing in faith? They are Christ's word to you. Now, perhaps another friend has come to you and said, well, it's good that you're a Christian, but you need a second definitive experience which I can give you. And perhaps this experience will involve extraordinary revelation. Perhaps it will involve you receiving the Holy Spirit. That's a challenge to the sufficiency of Christ. Christ dispenses the Spirit from the throne of grace and all those who are in Christ are indwell and filled by the Holy Spirit. There is no human being who can minister the Holy Spirit to another person. Christ ministers the Holy Spirit to his people christ fills his people with the holy spirit to be in christ is to be indwelt by the holy spirit it is not christ with or without the spirit you decide the spirit comes with christ and is called the spirit of christ if you're in christ you have the spirit it's not christ plus it's the all sufficiency of christ including the power and strength that we need from the holy spirit Now, perhaps another friend has come to you and said, there's this ritual that you need to do. There's this liturgy. There's this program. It's not really found in the word of God, but we've decided this is necessary in order for you to grow. Again, that's the sound of the evil one whispering in your ear. We are complete in Christ. He's not left out something that we need in order to be presented before him faultless and with exceeding glory and great joy. He's provided everything that we need. And when the whisperer comes to you and says, you need Christ plus something, it's the voice of a false teacher. We're complete in Christ. And if you're seeking the favor and pleasure and joy of your heavenly father, then commit yourself in the power of his spirit to put your spiritual affairs in good order and to stand firm and resolute and unwavering in your single-minded, wholehearted, world-denying devotion to Jesus. He is the Savior, the Son of God, all-sufficient, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, or he's not one or the other I think you need to make these verses your prayer pray that God would take these verses and make them true and real in your life pray for those things right now take a moment to do that and then I'll close Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we rejoice to struggle for those people who follow you here in this church, here in our denomination, the PCA, certainly for the church at large. We pray that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would keep us from being deluded by plausible arguments. And we pray that you would bring good order to our spiritual lives so that those around us can see the firmness of our faith in Christ. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.
1: please pray with me. Father, we, we thank you for the spiritual nourishment that you've given us, this mysterious spiritual nourishment. We pray uh, that you would use it to just make us more like the one who broke his body and shed his blood for us. It's in his name that I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We stand and receive the blessing, the benediction, coming from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 21, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.